I'm Andy Kesson, and this is A Bit Lit. Founded at the beginning of the UK lockdown, A Bit Lit is about conversation, celebrating and exploring theatre, literature and creative work across all periods and of all kinds. We've talked to professional wrestlers and about Ghostbusters and medieval sex positivity. We've looked at the histories of race, gender and sexuality. We followed migrating coconuts and the history of wine and cheese. We've gone from Jane Austen and Shakespeare to EastEnders via the history of early television, young adult fiction, photography, animation and documentary making. And with over 100 films already, many other subjects as well. Join the conversations at our website, abitlit.co or on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at abitlit. Hannah, Gregor, hello. Thank you very much for joining us today. How are you doing? Good. Fine, thanks. Um, so this is the start of what we're thinking of as a set of uh, time capsules, really, for a new research project that the three of us are just about to begin uh, called Box Office Bears. Oh dear, as I'm saying that, I'm forgetting what the subtitle is. It's got a brilliant subtitle with, uh, with words in it, which aren't currently in my head. Um, but thinking about animal baiting in the 16th and 17th century. And Hannah, in a moment, I'll ask you to introduce that project which you're leading. But before we do that, could we introduce ourselves, starting with Hannah, please? So, hello, I'm Hannah O'Regan from the uh, University of Nottingham, and um, I'm Associate Professor in Archaeology, so I'm an archaeologist specialising in bones. Thank you. Gregor? And I'm Gregor Larson. I'm a professor in the School of Archaeology at the University of Oxford. And uh, though I'm in the School of Archaeology, I'm primarily a geneticist. So I'm kind of straddling the whole science and humanities divide. And I'm interested in looking at uh, patterns of ancient DNA, mostly in animals, uh, through space and time to try and understand our relationship with the natural world. Brilliant. Thank you. You've both given excellent summaries of what you do. I'll try and do the same. But um, I'm Andy Kesson. Um, I've been excited to be running these films during lockdown uh, on a bit lit, um, but I work on the playhouses of Shakespeare's time and the playwriting community in general. I'm particularly interested in what the period looks like if we decenter Shakespeare and think about the period more generally as a period of um, business and architectural innovation in terms of how you entertain lots of people for money, um, which is a big part of, of Bears. Uh, Hannah, do you want to introduce Bears? Okay, so the project's uh, box office bears, uh, animal baiting in early modern England. So that's what you're missing, Andy. Um, And we're going to study the remains of uh, the animals that have been found in London in the Bankside arenas in Southwark, so not far from where the reconstructed globe is today. Uh, So studying the animals that lived there, putting them at the centre of our analysis, so finding out about their lives and really understanding where they came from, how they lived, how they died, what happened to them after that they died, and putting that into the context of what else was happening in the much broader, as Andy says, um, economy. So this was an entertainment, it was a business. People were making money out of it, so who was making the money, who was paying the money, um, you know, what, what were they getting out of it, and what were the motivations for this sport? Um, I put that in inverted commas, because obviously in the modern day, um, bear baiting is not something that we would consider a sport although actually it only finished the last country or last uh, part of a country um banned bear baiting only in 2013 so it's not that long ago that it stopped right and there are still parts of the world which um display uh violence violence plus animals as a form of entertainment i'm thinking for example about bull um, bullfighting yes um, yeah. so we're still we're still with this 
uh, and cultures of, of dogfighting as well, I suppose. Um, and I should I should say that with as I say we're thinking about this um, this film as a kind of uh, time capsule for a research project which is very important for the three of us to make clear has not started yet. Uh, we have won the funding. We're delighted. We're being funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council to work across our, our three research interests on this fascinating um, topic. And our hope is to continue to provide films through the three years of the project itself, um, checking in on that work. And Gregor, I know you were particularly interested in talking about the way that academia often doesn't share work in progress and doesn't share the kind of nuts and bolts of um, false starts and how you get from research questions to research answers. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I just was thinking about it recently. And, you know, it's not just academia, of course. Anytime that you're seeing something, if you go to the cinema, well, when you used to be able to go to the cinema and you're watching a film, what you're seeing is a, is a final product that is the result of often years or sometimes decades worth of effort and collaboration and compromise by a huge team of people that has resulted in, in what you're finally seeing and what you don't really ever see is the process. Although I am fascinated by um, this, you know, people are clearly interested in process itself. And I noticed uh, we're on Disney Plus recently and there's Frozen 2, but there's a, like a five or six part almost television series about the making of and people are fascinated about behind the scenes and you know you're really trying to get to grips with what were the scaffolds that were put in place and how did people interact in order to create something or even just on for a cartoon seeing actors at a microphone in a studio voice the actors voice the cartoon characters that you see is fascinating to to kids and to adults alike you just everybody wants to see that process even if you start with the final product and academia I mean, we have we have grant proposals, we have uh, talks that we give, and we have papers that we write, all of which are presented as this very completely scrubbed clean of all of, you mentioned architecture, all of the scaffolding on the outside. And what you're seeing is a very nice architecturally gleaming building, which looks great from a lot of angles and the right light and everything else. But what we don't often share with our students or certainly with anybody outside of academia and even postdocs is how we get to that place. And uh, you know, I was never taught, I was taught how to do it simply by being a part of it, but it was never a course that I went on. And I, and it's certainly nothing like this that kind of described all the missteps and the, the blind alleys and the cul-de-sacs that people go down when creating a final product, because it is iterative. And it is so important to try and, and think about this, not as like a straight A to B, but an A to some kind of Cyrillic letter that nobody's familiar with and ever, you know, back and forth and all over the place before we get to that final thing. And often that final thing is, you know, a year or two later, you kind of look back, you know, ah, this wasn't super great, but it's still held up as like the product that every, that's the, what's available online as a downloadable PDF and whatever else. So I feel like this is a really good opportunity, not only for us to sort of, for us to learn ourselves, but also to communicate what that process of discovery is like and how we go from the moment of funding, which already is built upon a mountain of effort and thoughts and um, intrigue and consideration to now a moment where the three of us are getting together to really decide what is the future, future direction of this project and how many decisions do we need to make? How many of those are right or wrong? And, and now in the context or in the future, and how do we make this into something that we are all going to be proud of at the end? Cause that's, that's not the question we will be, but it's just, we don't quite know how we're going to get there. And it'll be fun to, to see this almost in retrospect to see how, how did, what decision do we make a year ago? Because these things aren't, you don't often take into account how important something is until well after the fact. And so having that whole record from start to finish is going to be able to uh, make us really consider the process itself and how we can communicate that to, to future PhD students, postdocs, and even academics um, in their own right.
Yeah, I, I love that. And I'm really struck by how the architectural language you're using makes, some, makes um, this process sound a lot like a 16th century entertainment building in terms of scaffolding um, and cul-de-sacs, which is often where you put playhouses and probably also baiting arenas, I suspect. Um, so yeah, I, I really love that. Um, Hannah, you are, we should make clear that you are leading this project and that you've already put in an incredible amount of work just to get us to the point of applying for and successfully getting um, the funding. Um, you've given us um, a bit of a snapshot of the kind of work that we'll be doing. Um, for people who are completely new to this idea, um, what is animal baiting? I'm sorry to ask you the very, very general specific questions, but what, what is animal baiting? Um, how do we feel about it? And how do Elizabethans, Jacobeans feel about it? Okay, so animal baiting, and particularly the type that we're going to be studying, and bear baiting, although in the um, 17th, 16th, 17th century, you may have seen a lion being baited, a horse, a sheep, anything really that you could set dogs on. So the act of baiting is the act of setting dogs on another animal, could be another dog, uh, but usually another animal, uh, or bulls. How could I have forgotten bull baiting? Very, very popular. Um, uh, and uh, we think betting on the outcome. So um, you would, you'd have your dogs and say you're a gentleman. As we know, there are gentlemen of Essex. There's, there's one handbill for a bear baiting, which is five gentlemen of Essex bringing their dogs to try against a bear in Southwark. And so here you are, you're a gentleman, you bring your dogs and you demonstrate your virility, your masculinity by your dogs fighting this bear and making you look good in front of all your chums. Absolutely. If it's okay just to jump in to clarify for the audience, the term gentleman itself is not just a gender term, but a a social status term as well. Saying something about social status as much about gender, that that participation. Sorry to interrupt, but just to... No, no, and that's a really good point, because when we think of blood sports, um, there's a a big divide turns up in about the 1700s, where um, the gentleman, the, the higher social classes go in one direction, and the sports that had been, like baiting, patronised by the king, you had to have a licence to own a bear, that licence came from the king's representatives and you paid for it, that um, all begins to collapse and baiting becomes uh, a sport that's associated with the lower classes and needs to be banned, while other sports begin to take over, such as fox hunting and otter hunting and other blood sports, which then become associated with the aristocracy. So there's a, there's a big split become, between what becomes an acceptable blood sport and an unacceptable blood sport at some point in the 1700s. And baiting and cockfighting and those sorts of things all become banned in, in 1835, while others continue um, until relatively recently. Um, so there's, can, I, there's, can I ask a quick question about the, the terminology itself? Why baiting? What, what, because usually people think of like you bait a hook to get a fish, but what you're describing with what's happening with bears and bulls and a whole variety of other animals is not that same concept. What, so why baiting? Well, I'm not, I'm not um, perfect on this, but I think in this sense, the bait is the annoyance of the animal. So you're, you're, you know, like you bait a person. um, Well, yes, I suppose baiting in that sense is, is, is annoyance or, attacking another animal i'd have to check the oed i think to to actually get (laughs) we've got a research question there from gregor (laughs) so so when you've if you've baited by annoying so you're kind of you're goading more than baiting in a way right you're 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 upsetting the animal that you brought in with these dogs but it's still the betting that takes place is the is the the actual conflict between the animal that you brought in and the dogs is that right 
Yeah, well, you're, yeah, so you bring, you bring the dogs into the animals. So usually the, the bear or something would be owned and a bear ward is taking it. If, if you're not in London, a bear ward is taking it around the country and stopping in different towns and villages. And you will, the people in the village will bring out their dogs to fight. Um, and then um, the, the betting happens on, you know, which bits of the, we think. I mean, again, this is not being studied. There's, it's not being researched at all. But based on what, what we know of bull baiting, which again hasn't received very much study, um, it's the, which part of the animal gets bitten first, mm. how many dogs are killed during the fight, um, that, that sort of thing. Is, so it's almost like modern day prop bets, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but if you're watching... Um, well, there was a, a famous incident uh, not that long ago in cricket where if you, you could put a bet not just on the outcome of, of the cricket match, but on what specific things will happen at what specific times during the match. So during this particular over, will there be someone who bowls a no ball? And if the players are aware of this and you can convince a player to step over the line as they're, as they're bowling and delivering a ball during the over, then you can manipulate the game because people are invested not just in the overall outcome, but in a whole series of minute little moments that happen all the way through. And this is, um, there's even columns for the American Super Bowl in American football where you can, dis you can bet on whether or not in the first quarter that a safety will be scored, which allows two point to, gives two points to a team. And so you, and you can go to any sports book in Vegas and make up your own bet and say, I want to put a bet of this amount that this event will take place and they will give you the odds for that. So what you're describing is that that same sort of prop betting. So it's, it's actually a bad thing for the bear to die during this thing because then it can't be taken to all the different events. Right. But so it's kind of, it's almost exclusive. It's not about the outcome unless you're talking about like how many dogs are going to die, but it's about the process itself. What, what's going to take place during this baiting event. And then people put, put bets on that. Yeah. So I think there's two aspects. There's what's going to happen and the, and the baiting. Uh, so what's going to happen in the betting that, that goes on during, during the match, but also it's about the people who are bringing their animals and proving them against mm -hmm. the bear. So there, there's two de definite motivations perhaps between the people who are participating by bringing their animals and the people who are participating by observing. Um, the point of this though is the contest is not to see who's going to win the bear or the dogs, because if, if the bear really were to lose and where it was to die, then that would eliminate all future contests with that bear. And it's therefore bad for your business model. If you're the bear owner. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, the best comparison I can think of is something like the Roman gladiators. Yeah where they are owned, they are trained, they're, they're, they're very expensive to keep and you don't actually want them to die in the arena because you've invested so much in them. But the crowd are there because there's always the chance that today is going to be the day that one of them is going to die. Right. And so there's that real frisson of excitement, um, despite the fact that actually that's not what the owners want to happen. I also... So I, 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 sorry. Uh, well, I was just going to say, I think this is where professional wrestling is really useful as a contemporary example because... Professional wrestling develops because you want your fighters to fight the next day and the day after that. Uh, and so there needs to be a degree of performance. Um, in other words, an intervention in the contest to enable the fighters not to be dead or, or crippled to the point where they can't fight um, going forwards. So I think professional wrestling is a really interesting context for this. And the initial reading I'm doing around baiting, scholars say again and again how uninteresting this, this activity must be. that You're just watching the same thing. But I think this conversation we're having is exactly where the interest is, that there's narrative uncertainty built into the fight because the fight isn't about who kills who, but it's about a contestation of space 
and ownership. And it's about territorial animals, which, which is why I think King James has a very disappointing baiting when he goes to the Tower of London to watch a lion um, being, being involved. And of course, the lion just says, I ain't getting involved. I'm not interested. I'm not territorial. I'm going back to my, where I live. Um, but it's next, again, you two are the animal experts here, but it feels like it's an exploitation of animal instincts around space. Um, and that's what you're watching, particularly in, a, in an arena which fences off that space and includes you as a human audience um, in this negotiation of who owns and who is most powerful in a particular area. And I think more generally, I mean, that, that's, that's really fascinating because if it's the same thing, but slightly different every time, I mean, how different is that from any football match, right? Or, or anything where you have a beginning and an end, but everything changes in the middle. So if we're thinking about television, what you're always watching is you want your, you don't want your characters to die because you want them to survive for the next week. So then you start incorporating do's ex machina after do's ex machina to get them out of increasingly terrifying results because that would be the worst thing for them to die. Except then when you invert that, and that's why everybody hails game of Thrones as, as a big game changer, because what you do is you take your main character and you kill them off. And now the intrigue is unbelievable because now if there is that, as Hannah, you were describing, this frisson of anticipation is like, okay, we have these gladiators, we have these main characters in, in big flamboyant plots with, with Hollywood production values. Oh my God, and we killed one of them off. Ah, who's going to die next week? And in fact, there's whole videos online showing the responses of people, videoing people as they're watching Game of Thrones when key characters die to show how disturbing and how shocked they are because this is not the way that narrative television is supposed to work. So in that same way, if you're talking about moving an animal, like a, a big star across around the country so that the local gentleman can come in with their local dogs and have a go, and one of them happens to defeat the bear, that's big news, right? That's going to be huge. And if there's always that slim possibility that might happen, you don't want it to because you want the hero to go on to the next thing. But if that does happen, then wow, it just adds a whole frisson of excitement to the entire enterprise. Yeah. And I, I think you were going to come in earlier. Did you have something else to add? No. I can't remember. That was a good place, wasn't it? <laughs> okay. Speaking of prop bets, was there an over-under by the time we were, so one of us was going to mention Game of Thrones? Because I feel like, if, <laughs> I, I don't know if we were just over that or just under that, but whatever it is, we've done that now. So anybody betting, we'll, we'll, that's, we, we have to move on to the next bet. <laughs> I'm wondering if I can bring us back to basics on the project itself. Um, so, I mean, one of, the th one of my understandings of, of, ha one of one of the prompts for Hannah's original idea for the project is that the baiting arenas, some of them are excavated in the 80s, um, 1980s and onwards um, by archaeologists who were interested in the human lived lives, lives of those spaces. And so the, the fauna, the remains of these animals have been found, but, but were very much marginal to the interests of the people digging. And, and so that there's an initial prompt there um, to think about baiting from, as you were saying, Hannah, from the point of view of the animals, of recentering the animals? Yeah, I mean, I, it's not to say that they were marginal to the excavators, but the first sites that were excavated weren't actually the arenas themselves. Mm. And so they were within the vicinity and they were turning up dogs, but there were no bears found. And it's not really until you find the bears that you've got the story, I think. You know, trying to sell um, projects on, on um, dogs and cows is, is much harder than, than having a story about bears. Um, and so the, the earliest sites were, um, were, were, the, were the sites that didn't have the bears on. And the later sites that have come up have actually got the bear remains. And, and some have been studied, but some have not yet come to publication. And there hasn't been 
So while, while Moller have done brilliant work excavating many of these sites, not all of them, but many of them, and, and, and studying the remains, what hasn't been done is what, what we want to do in this project, which is the scientific analysis. Mm. So the, the various methods that we can now apply that have been developed over the last 15 to 20 years to work on these types of remains that could tell us much, much more about these animals and their stories. Mm. So, for example, we can look at their tooth enamel and look at the chemistry of that tooth enamel and say something about where those animals may have come from. So uh, were they born and raised in London or have they been moved in from elsewhere? So that's a critical part of our um, um, uh, project because there are archival records which say um, that the king's representatives have the power to go out from London and collect dogs because this sport and bull baiting must have gone through dogs at a great rate of knots, really. I mean, and particularly in bull baiting where the bull dies. Um, and actually, we think the bull dies, but now, now I think about it, there's a couple of bulls that are named in one of the archives for one of their theatres, which does suggest that that bull must have, or those bulls must have survived for some time to get a name. Mm. Um, so perhaps the lower, the lower ranking bulls died, but the, the higher ranking ones lived to fight another day. Um, but I've completely lost my thread on bulls now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, isotopes. Um, yeah. So, yes, yeah, so, um, so the King's representatives could leave London, collect dogs from the countryside, bring them to London and use them in baiting. And, you, and, and they could just take them because they had a license from the king. And I think, Andy, you told me about they were able to do this with children as well. Yeah, so if you um, if you run choir boys, um, the uh, uh, boy chorists for the queen or the king, um, yeah, you are legally entitled to kidnap, take any child that you want um, from any household, and it's those boys who are performing some of the most um, elite um, and best known plays of the period in front of in front of the monarchs. Wow! So, and again, you mentioned gladiators earlier. There's slavery built into into this. It's captivity of both human and animals. Um, built into a lot of these entertainment systems. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah, I was really shocked when you told me that. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, well, uh, while it's, you think, consider someone turning up and taking your dog is, is a heart-wrenching prospect. Someone turning up and taking your children as well. You know, just, oh. It, and um, uh, a scholar called Bart Van Ness has pointed out that a lot of the plays that the boys tell um, are about the kidnapping of children. But the plays then go on to foreground the lived experience of those boys. Um, so it's absolutely in the air of the show as you're watching it. Um, so they don't even have to act it. They can just recreate what it was like. And so <laughs> yeah, They are literally there right now. Um, and Gregor, you're, you're um, leading a lot of this work um, around the DNA. So do you mind telling us um, that side of the project? Yeah, so it's, it's a relatively small aspect of it, but as Hannah says, what we're trying to do is bring a, a wide variety of scientific techniques to interrogate a lot of the faunal remains, which up until this point have mostly been looked at from their context, from their metrical, so the size and the shape of the bones, and, and also identifying them down to species as well. But in addition to the isotopes, we can, and especially because they're, they're relatively recent, I mean, we're just a couple hundred years old, and we're at a relatively high uh, latitude, as is evidenced by a lot of the weather, that we are able that the DNA is likely surviving pretty well in a lot of these in a lot of these bones of both the bears and the dogs. Mm -hmm. And what we can do in our lab is extract and isolate that DNA from the bone and then sequence it and compare it to not just within all the dogs that we're getting themselves, but to a global 
survey of dogs um, and as as well as local dogs, and we can look both at the relatedness between those dogs. We can look at the ancestry of those dogs. And if we're, if we're particularly lucky with the preservation, we can start to get at what that DNA is telling us about the, uh, the morphology, the phenotypes, the outward appearance of those dogs. So we can look at things like coat color and we can combine what we know about the size of the bones with the size that, we're, that we're, the genetics is telling us. And so we can start to put some flesh on the bones as it were, and really start to think about where these dogs are coming from. Is this a, a very particular um, very closely related group where people are actually breeding them for this specific purpose, or are they just grabbing them from everywhere? And we can start to flesh out the biographies of both the bears and the dogs from a very high resolution genetic perspective while combining that with what we know about the isotopes and the metrics and everything else from the general context of how they're fine, including the cut marks, the pathologies, everything else about them. So we can really try and understand, um, as you say, almost the lived experience of the animals as, as much as the people. Yeah, and maybe reconstruct um, via trauma marks for kinds of the kinds of conflict, the kinds of fighting that we're we're looking at here. Some of the conversations we were having earlier, um, thinking about gender, um, um, size, uh, and there is this weird. Um, so with the Elizabethan playhouses, one of the things that first struck me when I started working on them is how many of our witness reports are written by foreigners. And there's a sense that people from Europe are coming to London and going, "What on earth is that bizarre?" building but that's much much more pronounced i think with baiting actually and it feels as if that um there's a, an especially strong association with englishness and dogs um and these large mastiff dogs and then at the same time you've got these imported animals like bears being brought in which may or may not also be being identified of english culture or perhaps are encouraging you as you watch to imagine you're in a bear habitat uh, you're in a Roman theatre, you're in the king's menagerie, you're at court watching, you know, what it, what's, what's that doing to your imagination, your brain as you watch this exotic creature again, versus a creature with which you strongly identify your own kind of national um, identity. There's lots of, again, stories happening there, I think. And similarly, and this is what Hannah would know a great deal more about than I do, but bears, of course, were native to uh, Britain uh, all the way up until a point at which we don't really quite know, uh, but they did go extinct. And But there was kind of an echo of bears along with wolves and a whole variety of other taxa and lions for that matter uh, on the landscape. But then, so you say that they're, they're coming from elsewhere. We don't even know necessarily where they're coming from, but it, it's sort of an echo of what was already there. So the whole kind of the association with animals and country and national identity is maybe even deeper if that's an animal that was there for a long time and is no longer. Yeah. But whether or not people knew that necessarily is a whole nother matter. And I don't know that they, they would have. And so, and Hannah, you probably know, you, I'm sure you know a great deal more about this. Um, yes. So I, I have a very strong suspicion that what we see from the Roman period onwards is the remains of bears that are being imported and the, the bears become extinct. Um, quite early, but I can't actually demonstrate that at the moment. We're waiting for some radiocarbon dates on bears from a variety of sites around Britain, oh, sorry, variety of sites around Britain, um, which will allow us to, to look at that in more detail. Um, but it, what is interesting is that we've definitely got this long association between bear baiting and, and it, or in Britain, Britain and bear baiting, or England and bear baiting. Um, there's a little there's a little image on the Bayer tapestry in one of the little panels at the at the bottom I think or at least one of the panels that runs along the top and the bottom there's a, there's a little baiting image there's also a, a famous record from 1174 I think which is saying that on um, sort of feast days the apprentices 
um, get together and I think they they um, they um, they cock not cockfight uh, throw stones at cocks and or cockles and they um, they've let loose dogs on big bears um, and that that's this is this is a massive entertainment in Britain and I'm not too sure to what extent it was elsewhere in Europe um, but I'm also I think there's a really interesting question which our project can really get to grips with which is to what extent is bear baiting actually about the bears at all or what is, what is it is it much more about the dogs um, it's it's demonstrating the the and one of the reasons they take ambassadors and foreigners to the um, to the the baiting arenas is to demonstrate the prowess of the dogs that we have, mm. um, because then sometimes the dogs are then given not necessarily the dogs that are being baited, but dogs from the royal kennels and things are being given as gifts. Mm. Um, so they've demonstrated their, how fab they are, and now you can have some. Um, That's fascinating. Um, we're moving towards wrapping the conversation up. Um, I'm wondering if the three of us briefly have um, a particular question that's fascinating you about, um, about the project, whether that be about the history of baiting or about the, the methodology, the, the methods of combining the various fields in which the three of us work. Um, and then we'll move on to the final question, which will be about literature, which I've already threatened you with. But yeah, um, would you mind if you have a, a brief um, question just to return to Gregor's idea of um, showing the nuts and bolts of, of the research project before it's even started? Um, questions which which are hanging around in exciting ways for us yeah i mean one thing that is a lot of people say that interdisciplinary research is impossible or at least you can get a bunch of people in a room who know nothing about each other's methods or ways of working much or the data sets of the analysis and we all kind of wrap ourselves in our own jargon and our terminology and our acronyms for things which are kind of mutually unintelligible and I, while I admit that is challenging, uh, both uh, Hannah and I, and I'm, I'm sure you, Andy, as well, have been involved in projects that, that have done this to a degree. I feel like this one, for me, offers a, a new opportunity because I haven't combined literature in this kind of way or thinking about things like um, historical economics or architecture that then looks also at isotopes and genetics and deep time ecology and ah oh, geez climate change and the whole thing so I'm I'm gonna be just as fascinated as anybody else to see how it is we can combine this and I think the only way to really do it is to have regular meetings and really try and understand each other's things ways of, of working because so much of what we, the potential of this is going to derive from the questions that we ask, but we cannot ask the right questions if we're not aware of the potential of what people are doing in the first place. And so I would be interested in a, in a maybe in a nutshell, Andy, if you could describe like what, what is your, what is your method here to try and get to the questions that you are interested regarding the kind of all the, the, the questions that you set up at the very beginning about the, the finances and the architecture in, re, in relation to Shakespeare and Verbeek. Well, I think the answer to that is some as, as substantial as we can census of everything we think we can find that is said about baiting as a practice, whether that be um, note-taking, um, you know, Philip Penslow writing down in his notebook the economic expenditure um, around baiting, for example, through to um, those eyewitness accounts I was talking about that people visiting London from abroad um, give us through to the really deep and strange engagement of, uh, of literature with baiting as a practice to the point where, you know, to take a very famous play like Twelfth Night, um, Twelfth Night is full of references to baiting and sort of stages of baiting of the character Malvolio, who is um, accused of being a bear 
and is then tormented through through the play and placed at the centre of a stage with everyone ar- around him watching him and enjoying him being attacked by the various kind of props and things around him. So it gets deep into the dramaturgy, the theatrical structures of a play uh, being performed in a space which looks extremely like a, a baiting arena. So I don't know if that answers your question, Gregor, but th- those kind of three different ways we might come at some of those questions. So then just to follow on with that briefly and to really get into the, the nitty kind of the guts of this, are you, presumably this information is in archives is it in books is it how do you then how would you go i mean i know nothing about this so how do you know that there is someone's travel log from 1680 or something that mentions bear i mean how do you begin to find that is that through a kind of a metatextual analysis where there's a computer that will search for all of this and, and output all these things or what's what's the way in which you can actually get to those references in the first place well, Hannah's as well-placed to answer that as, as I am. We're, we're lucky to be working at a time when there have been some really extraordinary um, kind of traditional book style, but also digital publications. Uh, there's a project called Records of Early English Drama, which is a Canadian project, which has been collecting up references to performance of all kinds across England. And it's not complete yet. It started in the, in the late 50, uh, 1970s and is still going. And Reed is, is a collaborator um, for this project. We have one of their key researchers, Sally Beth McLean, on our advisory board. Um, a lot of it is just simply reading the little scholarship that there is around this topic. I mean, there's, I think there's more than I was expecting there to be, but I would say there's kind of 30 key publications in the last century, which we'll be turning to and picking up on. Um, we have an archive at Dulwich College, left for us by Edward Allain, who was involved with um, the ownership of a baiting arena, ownership of bears, and the ownership of the mastership of, of the bears for the for the king and therefore was the person you would get at least from if you wanted to bait yourself, uh, do some baiting for yourself, not bait yourself. That sounds really weird. Um, so there are, there are archival sources like that. There are people who have done some of the archival work for us that we can, um, whose work we can draw on. Um, and then just kind of the old fashioned reading through of scholarship. But Hannah, you might want to fill some of that out. Oh yeah. I think you've, you've named the, the, the key ones there. Um, it's so the the Reed archive is, is absolutely brilliant and they've they've done a county by county survey um uh bringing together all aspects of entertainment as Andy said including any aspect of animal based entertainment but at the moment that information is all just sitting within the corpus there have only been two or three publications which have actually drawn out any aspects of that um for for a wider audience so there's about 30 counties i think have already been studied and that's just available as a good starting point to find out you know, what, what were the local people in the count, in towns paying for a bear baiting? And, and is it different in different towns? That information, some of that information is already there for many counties across the country. We've also got information from the quarter sessions or the court records. So the bear baiting is really associated with disorder in a lot of places. Mm. Because you're getting people together, they're getting drunk, they're watching things fighting, and then things spill over into the audience. Um, and so you get... Um, you get um, records of, of the court records as well. So there's all sorts of different angles that we can approach it from. So is there a digitized archive that you could simply do a word search for, say baiting, and just see what comes out of that? There are a few partial archives that we could do that with, but I think a lot of it is going to be traditional um, looking through uh, books and also going back to original documents in, in places like the National Archive. And um, if we do do word searches of that kind, words like play 
may well be worth looking up as well because the word play can be so much more um, poly polymorphous than we think of it as being. So I wouldn't surprise me if we found a play of baiting. I mean, certainly it's called the game, which is basically the same word as play, right? Um, so it'd be really interesting to think about whether baiting is the only word which is being used in the, in the period to describe this activity. Um, and the tricky thing is that it's baiting is spelt well, we, we can calculate, we can count as we go through it, work out just how many different ways baiting has been spelt, but there is no standard um, use of... of and, was it, and if it was called something other than baiting, or if the word baiting was used to describe, what was it used to describe before the use of animals and bedding in, in this sort of performative activity? That's the whole etymology of baiting. So that's, that's cool. As we're yeah. talking, I'm very struck by how unhelpful the word baiting is next to the word betting. <laughs> they just sound far too similar. That's yeah, well, I, keep, I keep wanting to calling it like fighting or contest or something because baiting, it just, it keeps hitting me on the side of the head. It's not baiting for me. Like that's not the way that I would use it. Although I can completely get like, if you are having a go, if you're baiting somebody in like, making fun of them and having them rise to the bait in that way to, they don't know that you're joking, but you are. And then they realize that they're not in on the joke. And the, so in that way, yes, but I just feel like somehow that with the violence and the goading of the animals just it doesn't really work in my head at the moment, but yeah. But Twelfth Night really does work like that. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, when I, when I saw it on stage, I hated it as a play and I didn't know what it was, but I found it a very uncomfortable thing to watch and, you know, rather than recognizing the baiting imagery lying behind it really brings, brings out... It's almost like high school bullying. You know, you're, you're picking on somebody and you're trying to get them to act out so that then you can say that they are not the victim, but they are the perpetrators of this because they are the ones who punched you first, even though psychologically you were tormenting them beforehand. Reminds me a lot of what I did with my brother when I was a kid, but we don't have to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gregor used a brilliant phrase earlier, which was an echo of bears. And I feel like that might be the title of uh, our series of films if we're going to make um, more of these films. Um, very quickly, may I ask, um, our kind of house question to finish off our films is what literature means to you. Um, I also wonder what literature means to bears and what literature means to baiting. Um, we should probably answer this fairly briefly if that's all right. But Hannah, do you want to start us off? Any thoughts? Um, yeah, literature and baiting. It's really interesting. As you say, in terms of scholarship, we're probably only looking at 30 odd papers that have been written that actually have a core of baiting. And if you go to the more popular books about bears and you read about certainly bears in Britain and particularly bear baiting in Britain, what you will read is a sort of usually a combination of things from the 19th and early 20th century. And that because there hasn't been much more scholarship. And so much of what you read is actually not correct. <laughs> so we've got a lot of work to do to um, explore and bring up to date the, the story of baiting so that, and, and disseminating it to people. Um, and I think it's important to do that because it's, uh, it's, well, it's something that hasn't been studied and we do have this nasty tendency to think of Shakespearean England as being something really quite special and highfalutin. And I think it was much more down and dirty than, uh, than we've given it credit for. So yes, examining the literature and um, updating it is what I want to. Perfect. Thank you. Gregor? Yeah, I'm just thinking about literature in general what, and how it relates to academia is... So, what, what we're all interested in is stories. 
and, and narrative. And I feel like a lot of the impression of scientists in white lab coats and just the facts and being able to conduct an experiment outside of any context and it's replicatable and all these things sort of undermines the importance of narrative and storytelling. When in fact, the only way that we can really engage with anybody and what we're doing is by putting it into a narrative structure. And what literature helps us to do is to think about that structure, how it's undermined and how we can best think about how people are interpreting what we're saying as we're saying it and a way to almost modify, modify that to ensure that what we're saying is being communicated to the widest possible audience in the clearest possible way. And from that perspective, genetics and, and isotopes and 17th century architecture are all the same thing. We're all just trying to communicate and get across an idea. And if we can learn from how other people have managed to do that, including Shakespeare himself, who was, who was pretty good at this, by almost spinning that narrative structure on its head and doing things not just with language, but with setting and with the way that I, and timings and flashbacks and whatever else, then we can start to think about how it is we want to uh, proceed and how we want to approach this project while keeping in mind the whole narrative structure of what it is we're trying to do in the first place, which is just to get to an answer and to tell a story about how it is that people and bears and dogs were all interacting at this time and how that reflects on us now. I just think that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And I love hearing from both of you about listening to um, undoing the last 200 years of misunderstanding around this area, as Hannah was saying, listening to people like Shakespeare telling us stories, but also I'm so excited about how this project, thanks to the two of you, will have us listening to the bears, that the bears will be involuntarily, and there may be some problems there for us to discuss sometime, but they the will dog. nevertheless be speaking to us. Sorry, go on. The dogs. <laughs> What's that? The dogs. And the dogs, absolutely. Um, we will get them speaking to us, and uh, yeah, I think it's gonna be really exciting. Um, the last thing I'll say is that um, we are soon to advertise um, two postdocs for this project, and later a third postdoc for the project. Um, we will be posting information about the project on the Before Shakespeare website, which is beforeshakespeare.com. Um, and we'll be hosting these films, Our Echo of Bears, uh, on the Abitlit website, which hopefully the viewer is on right now, but just in case they're watching on YouTube, is abitlit.co. Um, thank you both very much. I look forward to speaking to you again. Cheers. Thanks, Andy. Cheers. Bye. Abitlit, celebrating creativity and research of all kinds.